You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. It's good to be with you. We have a challenging text this morning. We need God's help, so let's go and ask for it now. God, it is always my prayer that through your word you would both comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. God, I pray that you would do both and that I wouldn't stand in your way this morning. Thank you, God, that you are committed to saving us to the uttermost, Lord, that we are secure in heaven and yet on earth you secure us, you preserve us, and so I pray that you would um, teach us to endure, Lord. And give us great encouragement this morning from your word, conviction, warning, everything we need, um, where we need it. Jesus, only you can do that. Pray that you would help us now. In your name, amen. So last year, uh, my son Jake, he plays flag football. He made this amazing play. It was beautiful. He was on the outside covering a guy. He read the route read the quarterback's eyes, jumped the route, made the pick. It was beautiful, just beautiful. And there was only green grass between him and the end zone. And in triumph, as he ran, with one hand he carried the football, with his other hand he pointed up, touchdown. (laughs) Only green grass in front of him. The problem was there was about 35 yards of green grass in front of him, and a very fast wide receiver behind him who he didn't see, who ran him down and pulled his flag at the one-yard line. They scored right after that, so it was fine. But Jake learned a valuable lesson, one I had to learn, too, when playing sports, and that's that you never, ever celebrate too early. Never. In fact, some of the most iconic moments in sports are people celebrating too early. Today we are talking about presumption. Presumption is assuming something to be true rather than knowing it to be true. In sports, that's celebrating too early. In sports, it's funny. In our walk with Jesus, it's not funny at all. Presumption. Why is presumption so dangerous? Well, think of it this way. Um, How many people have you seen come to Jesus and start well? They are so enthusiastic. They're on fire. They will not shut up about Jesus. Maybe that was you when you came to Jesus. That's a beautiful thing. A lot of people start with great enthusiasm. Let me ask you a second question. How many people do you know who finished really well, who got to the end of their life and they were still running hard for Jesus, they were growing in their faith. I don't know that many who finished really well. Frankly, a lot of people who started well, I know, didn't finish at all. Here's a third question to to consider. How many of those people who started well just assumed that they were going to finish well? 
Do you ever assume that because you have started well, you will finish well? That's the trap of presumption. In her book, Grit, Angela Duckworth says that enthusiasm is common, endurance is rare. Enthusiasm is common, endurance is rare. And I think that's just as true in our relationship with Jesus, which is why in the New Testament, one of the things we are constantly told to guard against is presumption. What is presumption? It's assuming that I have a vibrant faith in Jesus rather than having a vibrant faith in Jesus. It's assuming that I'm trusting God rather than actively, humbly trusting God. It's one of the most insidious, dangerous traps that we can fall into. So how do you know if you've fallen into this trap of presumption? How can we be delivered from it? That's what we're talking about today as we continue the study of 1 Corinthians. Two weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians 9. Paul gives us this image. He says, So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. It's interesting. Paul says he disciplines himself to follow Jesus. He stays focused on this finish line. Why? So that he might not be disqualified. What's Paul saying? He's saying it's possible to start and not finish in the Christian life. And that leads to Paul's great concern for the Corinthians because they had started following Christ, but Paul wanted to ensure they finished with Jesus as well. And Paul was concerned, why? Well, because they are becoming presumptuous. We've seen this throughout the letter. They're flirting with idolatry. They're practicing sexual immorality. They're grumbling. They're divisive. And all that's bad. But what makes it really bad is they're doing it with a heightened sense of spiritual pride, superiority, arrogance. See, they were doing all these things while assuming that they're on God's team, favored by God. Rather than trusting in Jesus, they're beginning to assume they trust in Jesus. Paul says that's a very dangerous thing. Paul has been warning about this attitude really throughout 1 Corinthians. Now he gives his sharpest, most direct warning. So we're going to look at the dangers of presumption, and then we're going to look at how to be delivered from presumption, from presuming on God's grace. So let's begin at the end of the passage and look at the dangers of presumption. Here's Paul's big point, verse 12. If you've got a Bible, pull it out. You can underline this, highlight it. This is the point of the passage. Therefore, in light of everything I'm saying, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Corinthians, you assume that you have a standing with God. You arrogantly boast that you are the special Christians. Take heed lest you reject Jesus entirely and shipwreck your faith. That's Paul's warning. Don't assume that you stand lest you fall. Now, that raises an uncomfortable question, doesn't it? Because you go, wait a minute, Jeff, time out. I thought the Bible teaches once saved, always saved, that once you're a Christian, you can't lose your salvation. So, so is Paul saying that it's possible to come to Christ, to know Christ, to follow Christ, and then lose what Christ gave you? That's a good question. I'm not going to answer it yet. Hold on to it. We're going to return to it later. But first, I want to look more closely at the danger because Paul says it's a very real danger. 
The danger is this, that you, you come into the Christian life and you begin to presume on God's grace. And today, today's passage, Paul gives us the Bible's exhibit A of spiritual presumption. And that's Israel in the wilderness. The wilderness generation of Israel is exhibit A in the Bible of what it looks like to presume on God and assume you have a relationship with God when you don't. So how do I know if I am guilty of presumption, if I am falling into this trap? Well, I want to draw two lessons from Israel's history, and then we'll look at how to be delivered. Let's look at Israel here. Here's what Paul says. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown, literally strewn about in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Paul gives the example from athletics of starting a race but not finishing it. Now he illustrates the exact same point from the Old Testament, and he says that what happened to Israel in the wilderness is instructive for us. In fact, in verse 11, he says that the story of Israel in the wilderness was written for our instruction. Now here's the question, how can Paul be so confident that this thing that happened to the Old Testament people of God is so relevant for the New Testament, New Covenant people of God. Let's look at this because this shows us a lot about Paul's assumptions about how the Bible works. See, first, Paul assumes that the Bible is one unified story. Mark Twain said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And that's also true of biblical history history. There is this rhythm and rhyme to the way God works, and you can detect patterns throughout it. And if you want to see the pattern of how God works, do you know where, what book you go to? Exodus. Exodus. That is God's pattern of salvation. What do we see in Exodus? That God delivers His people through the death of a substitutionary sacrifice, defeating God's enemies, leading them home, and then forming a covenant with them where he fills them with his presence. That's how salvation works. And do you know what theme gets repeated again and again in the Old Testament? That theme. This is how God delivers again and again and again. And so it's no surprise that when we come to Jesus, what do we see? Jesus doing the exact same thing. In fact, in Luke 9, Jesus has this chat with Moses and Elijah on a mountain And Luke gives us an ear in on their conversation. And you know what Luke says? That Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were talking about the exodus that Jesus was about to accomplish. So the whole point of biblical history is to show us this pattern of redemption. The exodus is God's paradigm of salvation. Similarly, the wilderness generation, the people who get saved out of the exodus, that is the biblical paradigm for unbelief. 
That is what a stubborn, hardened heart looks like. That's the pattern in the Old Testament. You go to Psalm 78, you go to Nehemiah 9, don't be like them. So, so Paul isn't making up anything new here. This is the biblical pattern of salvation. This is the biblical pattern of refusing to embrace salvation. He's picking that up and saying it's still relevant for God's people. Unity of the Bible. This is one story. Why is it one story? Because it's one God acting in the story. And the God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. Isn't it amazing the way that Paul makes this point clear? Something very interesting that he says Verse 4, he alludes to Exodus 17, where God is leading Israel through the wilderness, and he gives them water from a rock, miraculously. Paul calls it a spiritual rock. Then he says that it followed Israel in the wilderness, and then he says the most astonishing thing of all, that rock was Christ. Now, now what is Paul saying? The rock followed him. Does Paul think that the rock Literally, it was just kind of creeping up behind Israel throughout the wilderness. Just there's the rock, and I, I don't know how a rock, I don't know how a rock walks, but you know the rock is following Israel as they go along. Some people think that. I think the point is a little more subtle than that. Notice Paul calls it a spiritual rock, which means he's focused not on the literal rock, but on the one who was providing the rock. The rock was from whom God's spirit. And interestingly, when you get to the end of the wilderness story in Deuteronomy 32, Moses recounts all that God did for Israel, all of his dealings, all of his provision. And do you know what he calls God? The rock. So ultimately, the point is God was the rock leading you through. God was the rock giving you water the whole way. He is the spiritual rock. And now Paul takes it one step further and says, Israel's God, that rock who supplied all your needs, who is he? He's Jesus. He was the one leading Israel the whole time. That's an astonishing thing. You know, Paul thought that all of God's promises to Israel had come to fruition in Jesus. He's going to say the end of the ages has come in us. All of God's plans have been culminated in Jesus. He's the last word, and Jesus decisively reveals who Israel's God is which means you can't know Israel's God apart from Jesus. And if you look back to the Old Testament now, we can see, you know what? That was actually Christ all along doing all those things. He's revealed in the New Testament. He's concealed in the Old Testament, but he's active nonetheless. In fact, Paul will say in verse 9 that the Israelites were putting Christ to the test in the wilderness. Not just God, but Christ. So you have the same story. You have the same God one God revealed in Jesus, and one people of God. Look what he says about the unity of the people of God. In verse 1, how does he refer to the Israelites? Not as the fathers of Jews, but as our fathers. Now, Paul is talking to the Corinthians who are predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish. And yet to this predominantly non-Jewish audience, he said, these are our fathers, our ancestors in the faith. What's, what's Paul saying there? That when we come to know Christ, we get grafted in to, to God's covenant and his promises. So the story of God's people is now our story, which means we have this new spiritual heritage. So even if you're not ethnically a Jew, guess what? They're your spiritual fathers. It's a great privilege. It's also a great cautionary tale, isn't it? Because you don't want to bear the family resemblance. And that's Paul's concern here. 
There's one story, and the implication is this. This story is way more relevant to us than we might initially think. The wilderness generation, this is the cautionary tale for Corinth and for us. And it's amazing all the parallels Paul is going to draw here between the Israel's light situation and the Corinthian situation. What, what were the, the Corinthians obsessed with as we've read through this book? Just infatuated with powerful spiritual experiences, right? They're enamored with God working miraculously in their midst. That's how they think they know they have a right relationship with God, right? (laughs) What does Paul do? He says, you know, Corinthians, you've all had these amazing spiritual experiences. You think that makes you just fine with God. You know who else had some amazing spiritual experiences? Israel. I mean, if you were going to rank miracles in the Old Testament, Exodus wins, right? (laughs) Plague after plague, and then God just shows off at the end of it and parts the Red Sea to free His people. Look Look at how Paul describes this here. He says that all went under the cloud, all passed through the sea. You might remember that scene when Israel is on the shores of the Red Sea, Pharaoh's armies in pursuit. What does God do? He comes as a glory cloud. He forms a barrier between Israel and the armies of Pharaoh. He protects them from behind, and then he parts the sea in front of them. And Paul says, in that moment, they are baptized. What does that mean? Well, in the, in the Bible, baptism is entering a new life. It's going from one state of being to another. At that moment in the Red Sea, when they go through the cloud, through the sea, they go from one kind of life to a new kind of life. On one side of the Red Sea, they're slaves. On the other side, they're free, right? And they all experience that together, and they're baptized into Moses. What does that mean? Moses is the forerunner, right? He's the one leading them through the Red Sea, Paul is saying they were baptized, immersed into a new life of following Moses as their leader. That's the point, right? Just like in baptism for us, when we go public with our faith through water baptism, we're getting baptized into Jesus, giving allegiance to Jesus as our leader. That's what's happening, right? So, incredible, profound, spiritual experience, but the miracles don't stop there. Because after the Red Sea, what happens? They come into the wilderness, Exodus 16. They're completely dependent on God. They cry out to God. What does he give them? Manna from heaven. He provides for their hunger. Then Exodus 17, they're dying of thirst. What does he do? Miraculously, provision of water. You have spiritual food, spiritual water. That's not referring to the nature of the food like it was immaterial food or something like that. It's it's food that was what? From God's Spirit. So God's Spirit was active corporately working in all of these amazing ways. Now, do you see the parallel with the Corinthian situation? They'd had these corporate experiences of God's power and supernatural knowledge and God doing amazing things to the point that in 1 Corinthians 8, they say what? All of us possess what? Knowledge. We are special, miraculous, supernatural Christians because God is working in us corporately in all of these amazing ways. Look at us. And Paul says, well, I got an example for you. Wow, all got through the Red Sea, all got these miraculous things happening to them. And then here's the record scratch moment. Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. 
for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Impressive start for Israel. Who made it home? Who made it home from the generation that came out? Most of them didn't make it. That's an understatement. You know how many made it? Two. Joshua and Caleb. Everyone else died. God was displeased with them. Why was God displeased with them? Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that generation had a stubborn, unbelieving, rebellious heart, and they refused ten times in a row to trust God in the wilderness. And so they forfeited the inheritance God wanted to give them. All compete, one wins the prize, all got out of Egypt, two made it to the promised land. You see the theme here? Don't be presumptuous. The Corinthians had this corporate experience of God's blessing and power, and yet their hearts were hardening. God's grace toward the Corinthians wasn't producing repentance. It was producing this smug satisfaction, superiority, entitlement. And they were beginning to believe that they could gratify all their fleshly desires and still live in the blessing of God. Sounds like Israel, doesn't it? Sounds like the first sign of presumption. Here's the first sign of presumption in our lives. Do God's blessings lead me to greater contentment in Him or to complacency? In Deuteronomy 32, Moses said that in the wilderness, Israel became fat. <laughs> Do you know what he's saying? They became full of God's blessings and it just made them smug self-satisfied, and actually led them to ignore and reject God and feel like they didn't need Him at all. Now, we go, Israel, what were you thinking? But here's the question for you. When things are going well in your life, do you tend to draw near to God or forget God entirely? This is the danger throughout the Bible that when God shows favor, when God gives blessing, because of our sin, it tends to lead us not back to God in gratitude, but away from God in self-reliance. <laughs> I got this now, God. Thank you. I don't need you because my life is fine. How many of you need a crisis to pray? How many of you need a catastrophe in your life to come back to God and draw near to Him? Because that's a sign of presumption, isn't it? That if my life is fine, I don't need God. And what are you doing? You're just taking God's blessings for granted. It's like, as long as God's blessing me, I can live any way I want and forget about him. But the minute hardship comes, then I'll come back to God. That is Israel's cycle again and again. That's presuming on God's grace. God is not the crisis intervention counselor in our lives. We need him every hour. We need him all the time to be delivered from all our sin. Not just when everything hits the fan. That's when we need God. No. All the time. And yet, my wandering heart forgets that all the time. Right? How often have you prayed for something so earnestly, said, God, do it, and then he does it, and then you forget? I did that last week. Like I had like five things I was praying for. I'm like, oh God, do this, 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 this. And he did all of them, and it took me like five days to remember. Oh, God did all those things. And even now, I can't remember what the five things were. Right? That, that's the danger of presumption. That, that we just 
don't see all of God's goodness, which is supposed to be the tether that keeps me close to God. It just makes me fat so I forget God. That's presumption. Does that make sense? First sign. Now, God is, is merciful to us in that, in our fat self-satisfaction. And what does he do? He disciplines his children. He, he gives us cautions. He, he tries to bring us back to him when we wander. And now here's the second sign of presumption. When God brings trials into my life, how do I respond? How do I respond? Paul goes on with this analogy between the Corinthians and, uh, and Israel, and it's just shocking how closely they map onto each other here, okay? Paul really knew how to read his Bible. Look at this. Paul says, Corinthians, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Corinthians, don't worship idols. Now, here's the brilliant connection Paul makes. Exodus 32, you remember the story? Moses goes up on the mountain and it's like dad left and all the kids go crazy. Remember this? Like dad goes up to talk with God and the kids just go nuts and they're like, we need an image of God. We don't like the scary God on the hill. Let's build a calf. And so they worship the calf. And what do they do? They start eating these idolatrous meals in the presence of the calf. Remember 1 Corinthians 8, what the Corinthians are doing? They're eating meals in an idol's temple and think it's no big deal. Right? We're still worshiping the true God. We just want our idol food. Wow, that sounds like Israel, doesn't it? We still want Yahweh. We just want the idol food too, right? They're just totally governed by their desires. Don't be idolaters. They ate, drank. They rose up to play. That, that word play has connotations of sexual immorality, and that leads to the next comparison Paul makes. We must not indulge in sexual morality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Remember, Numbers 25. I mean, Israel is at the end of the wilderness journey. And all of these Moabite women seduce these Israelite men into idol worship and sexual immorality. And 23,000 people die, boom, on that day because of it. And what is Paul consistently warning against in 1 Corinthians. You're engaging in sexual morality. Stop, flee sexual morality, and it's connected with idolatry. They're probably going into these idolatrous temples and sleeping with prostitutes. So same thing. <laughs> Uncomfortable comparisons here, aren't they? So there's idolatry. There's sexual immorality. Third, there's grumbling and complaining among these people that's provoking Jesus, just like the Israelites did. We must not put Christ to the test, and some of them did. And we're destroyed by serpents. That's Numbers 21. Nor grumble as some of them did. That's all of the wilderness generation. That's the thing, grumbling. And we're destroyed by the destroyer. What are the Corinthians doing constantly? They're divisive. They're disputing. They're grumbling. They're complaining. They're fighting over leadership in the church. What were the Israelites doing in the wilderness? constantly grumbling, not just at God, but at Moses and Aaron and their leadership and fighting over these things. Do you see? This is an uncomfortable parallel, isn't it? Corinthians, do you see what's happening here? Will you learn from their example? Now, God brings judgment upon judgment on the wilderness generation. Why does he do it? Paul tells us, verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example. 
but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. You could translate that first phrase, now these things were happening to them as an example. What is Paul saying? That the judgments that God was meeting out on his people in the desert, they were supposed to be an example for who? For the people of Israel. Right? Israel would sin. God would discipline it. That was the cautionary tale, right? Israel, turn from your sin. They would do it again. Israel, turn from your sin. They didn't do it. Israel, turn from your sin. And so God sends test after test and discipline after discipline, saying, Israel, wake up, wake up. You're refusing me. And what did they do? They stubbornly disobeyed. And they forfeited the inheritance God wanted to give them. And Paul says, Corinthians, please learn the lesson that the Israelites did not learn. When God brings trials into our life, it's to teach us dependence. When he brings discipline into our lives, it's to teach us repentance. So here's the second sign of presumption. When God is doing that, does it lead me to dependence and repentance or to stubborn persistence in my sin? Do you know what God is trying to deal with in your life right now? Okay, if you don't, that's a problem. Because <laughs> he always is. He's always meddling in your business, just to let you know. Because he loves you and you're his kid. And God doesn't discipline other people's kids. He disciplines his own kids. He's always trying to discipline you. Sometimes the trial is just there to test you to see your faith. It's not because you did something wrong. It's just you have a test that you need to walk through. Sometimes you just make a mess of things in your life and your way gets hard because God's saying, no, I want to wake you up. You're continuing in this evil desire. I'm going to make your way hard. I'm going to make your way hard. Are you listening? Are you listening? Or is there an area where you're saying, God, I want you to bless me and I refuse to be taught? Because those things cannot go together. That's presumption. That's presuming on God's grace because God's grace isn't just pardon for your sin. It's power to free you from your sin. And God's not going to give you the pardon without giving you the power too. He wants both of those things. Okay? I, I have a le- God has been teaching me a lesson for the last year about anger, okay? That's my lesson for the year, anger. I am not an angry person. I'm just surrounded by idiots, okay? Um, not my family. I love my family. But it's just that yet people are idiots. That's why I'm angry, right? And, and, and God's been teaching me that's, that's not actually why I'm angry. It's what I thought. It's not true. And, and, and so I have a low-level rumbling irritability way too often. And God is slowly, mercifully trying to get my attention. And it's getting more and more painful. Literally painful. Like I was cleaning up the house a few months ago. I was so mad because they have kids and they're acting like kids again and not picking up their stuff. I was like, life, I can't believe we have to do this again. I just want to go to bed. And I'm in my self-pity party right right there. And there was something on the floor, and I was so annoyed. I went to kick it. And as I kicked, I, I missed it, which I'm a soccer player, so I shouldn't miss it. And I missed it, and I got the baseboards right at the corner with my toe. Just bam, right there. And just splits open, right? Just gushing blood. And I'm just sitting there looking, 
and my bloody sock. And I'm like, okay, God. Okay. Okay. But I'm not getting the lesson because I'm still irritable. I'm still irritable. So I pull out of my driveway this week and I'm irritable because, right, the world is full of idiots and I, I have to manage that. And it's so frustrating, right? And I'm, I'm late, right, because other people couldn't do what they And so I'm just... And so I, I pull out and, and uh, years ago we voted to put speed bumps on... Um, <laughs> on our street. And I was for that because there are crazy people out there who drive like they're crazy. And so I, as I do every day, speed around the speed bumps on my street to avoid them. And you know, it had just rained a lot. And so I'm annoyed and I'm driving and I swerve to avoid the speed bump. And there's a puddle right, right here. And, and I'm just oblivious to this, but there's a guy walking right there. And there's a huge puddle, right? And you know where the story is going, but I didn't know where the story was going. And so at the last possible minute, like it was an act of malice, right? Like I, I swerve out of the way and just nail this guy. SeaWorld splash zone. Just get him drenched. And I look back and he's up at arms. He's just furious at me. And I'm like, yeah, you should be angry, man. Like I... I, right, but n now it's like the next level in what God's trying to teach me. Your anger isn't just hurting you. Now it's really ruining other people's day as well. Can I get your attention? Can I get your attention? Where is God trying to get your attention? Do you know where it is? And where are you just saying no? I like the blessing. I don't like the discipline. God's saying it's a package deal. It's a package deal because God wants to give you joy in Jesus and that means freeing you from your sin, not just giving you good stuff. Okay? This is challenging. How do we get delivered from presuming on God? You know, if Paul ended the passage at verse 12, take heed lest you fall, this would be a very discouraging passage, wouldn't it? Corinthians, you're just like the wilderness generation. And man, can they argue with him at this point? Oh man, he's got him nailed. I mean, wow. But if that's where we're left, right? Like, what hope is there? What hope is there? If you're a Corinthian, you're like, great, we're just like them. You know, maybe two of us are going to get to glory. Maybe Jim and Sheila over there are going to make it, but the rest of us are doomed, right? We're not even, there's no way we get saved. Uh, and then Paul ends in this way that commentators struggle to know why he ends this way uh, because it seems so out of place. I, I think it's beautiful. Look what he says. Listen, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, this is an extraordinary statement, isn't it? Because Paul has just given the Corinthians every reason to believe they're going to shipwreck their faith entirely. Every reason to believe they're doomed, they have hardened hearts, they're not going to repent, they're not coming back to God. And then he ends by saying God's faithful. And he's not just saying God's faithful, you can improve yourself. No, he's saying like God is faithful and he's going to take care of you. That's what he's saying. He's saying, 
you're going to be fine because God's faithful. In fact, he's not going to let you be overcome by temptation. He's going to give you a way out. You're going to be able to endure. So be encouraged. What? It's similar to what he said back in chapter 1. He says, remember, God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship. Now, there's a tension here, isn't there? Do you feel the tension? Don't fall away. And yet God is faithful. He'll sustain you. Which one is it? This is what's so important for us to know about what it means that Christians are once saved, always saved. I believe that. I believe the New Testament teaches that. But we are saved by faith. And faith is a living, active, repentant, abiding, all of life thing that endures to the end. And the reason we're saved to the uttermost is because we trust God to the end and God ensures that we will. See, that's the perseverance of the saints. The, the perseverance of the saints, we will, all true believers will persevere to the end. And the only reason we can have confidence in the perseverance of the saints is God's preservation of the saints. God is invested in getting us there. He sustains us guiltless. He provides the ways out. He makes sure that we don't ultimately just sit in our sins and succumb to them. And so why would then Paul issue this warning against falling away? Here's why. Because God's warnings are one of God's means to keep his children trusting him. God uses the warnings to show us that rejecting Christ is a big deal, period. And if I really belong to him, I won't, and I'll heed the warning. <laughs> That's the point. This is how Spurgeon said it. God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by use of means. And one of these is the terrors of the law, showing them what would happen if they were to fall away. There is a deep precipice. What is the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why to tell him that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. See, if you really belong to him, you are going to persevere in the faith. But God is going to use both the promises of his faithfulness and the warnings against it to keep you following him. And the sign that you are a genuine believer is that you heed the warnings and trust in the promises. And you need both, right? Without the promises, you would despair. Without the warnings, you would presume. And so God is using these things to keep you in the faith. And now here's the beautiful thing about this. If you hear of the terrors of apostasy and that if you reject Christ, you are rejecting Christ. And you go, oh my gosh, this is terrifying. I don't want to be in my sin. Good. Good. If you are afflicted in that, that's just a sign that God's spirit is working in you and you don't want to stay there and you don't want to presume on his grace or sin with a high hand. You want to confess your sin and be right before God. That's just a sign that God's spirit is working you. And Paul would say, hey, you're going to fall a lot. <laughs> you're going to fail a lot, but God won't fail you. God's going to get you through to the end. And if the warning's paying your heart, that's just a sign the Spirit's in there. And if it doesn't paying your heart, I can't help you. Only God's Spirit can give you that conviction. Um, after I splashed that guy, I was beating myself up a lot. 
and just like, oh gosh, like, I just, I can't believe I did that. And then I'm driving off and I'm like, I, <laughs> I can't not go back and find that guy, right? I got to find the guy I splashed. So I turn around, I go look for him. He's not on our street. I'm like, darn it. And I'm like, God, this is going to weigh on me all day unless I find the guy. God, I've got to find the guy. Please just show me where the guy is. So I pull around a corner. I go up a hill by my house and there's the guy. At least I think it's the guy. I'm not totally sure. So I have to have the most awkward conversation, right? I pull around and I turn down the window. I'm like, hey, are you the guy that I just splashed with water? He's like, yeah, that's me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. I was so careless. He's like, God, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm like, okay, thanks. Go on with my day. Now, Here's the thing, I could beat myself up about not growing in anger or I can say, okay, no, that's God's spirit in me saying I have to be right with people to keep moving through the day. Okay, so when you feel that conviction, see, conviction is hopeful, condemnation is hopeless. The enemy's only gonna say there's no hope, you're doomed. Conviction's saying, no, you can always start again. You can always start again. And if that's how you feel, that's what you need to know. You can always start again with God. Isn't that the beautiful thing in the Old Testament? It will use that example and then say, yet God was merciful and faithful. He did not forsake his people. He did not forsake his people. He did not forsake his people. If you're in Christ, he's not going to forsake Christ, so he's not going to forsake you. Okay? Here are two truths, though, to remember to be delivered from temptation that Paul gives. If you feel stuck in your sin like you're never going to get out... Two truths to remember to deliver you from this. First, your temptations are not as unique as you think. <laughs> no temptation has overtaken you except what? That is common to man. In other words, that is common to fallen humanity. The thing you feel like you can never break free of, guess what? Tons of other people have felt the exact same way. And Christ has freed tons of other people from the same thing. So don't believe the lie that you're stuck in that thing forever because it's just that. It's a lie. Because if you believe the lie, then you're going to think, well, I'm just going to keep on sinning the same sins forever and presume on God's grace. No. No, God loves you too much to leave you there. He will help you overcome. In fact, he's committed to it as, your, as, as his child. Here's the second truth to know, that God is not going to remove every temptation, but he will grant power to resist every temptation right? People take this verse to say, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle. That's not what this passage is saying. <laughs> He's saying God will not allow you to continue in temptation and make a shipwreck of your faith. That's the point. But when the temptation comes, what does he provide? A way of escape that you what, may be able to endure it. Now, isn't that an interesting combination of things? A way out so that you can endure. <laughs> you escape it, but you endure it. Hmm, what does that mean? It means God does not deliver you from temptation by removing temptation. Right, what does the person say? I can resist everything but temptation, right? Jesus wasn't delivered from temptation. He was delivered through temptation. God isn't going to remove every evil desire inside of you but God will always give you a path of escape. And the path of escape is this. Learn the promises of God like Jesus did in the wilderness. 
believe they're true and act like it, God will always give you a way of escape. Now, here's the thing. With those temptations, look for the way of escape. When, when the temptation, when you first feel it, okay, this temptation is common to man. God's giving me a way of escape. What's the promise God gives me in relationship to this temptation? Okay, now how am I going to act to flee it when the desire comes? That's the way of escape, by the way. The way of escape is not being tempted to lust and then being like, well, I'll watch this show that's mildly inappropriate and then I'll watch this other show that's more inappropriate and I'll keep kind of halfway conceding to my temptation until I get to the really bad stuff and saying, God, deliver me from temptation. What's God going to say? Brother, you missed the way of escape. It was back there, right? If it's a substance addiction, it's not going to be getting close to that thing and then in the final moment saying, God, deliver me. It's no, it's back here. God is giving you the way of escape. But here's the beautiful truth. God gives you the way of escape. God's going to get his way. God is going to make you like Jesus because he promises to do it. So repent and believe and get up. And here is the most encouraging thing of all, and this is where I'm going to end. Look, only one person made it through the wilderness successfully. Not even Joshua and Caleb did. You know the only one who made it through the wilderness successfully? Jesus. Matthew 4. He faces every temptation that Israel did. He passes the test. Perfect score. Checks every box. And he's the one leading you now through the wilderness of your life. He's already passed it perfectly. So even when you fail, he already succeeded. And Proverbs 24 says the righteous man falls seven times, gets back up. Wicked fall once and are destroyed. Get back up. Because he's not going to let you fail if you belong to him. He will not let you fail. He will pick you up even when you stubbornly persist in sin. He's going to grab you by the scruff of your neck and drag you through the wilderness if he has to to get you home. He will do it. He will preserve your faith. And the sign that you believe it is that you're going to keep repenting, keep getting up. But keep getting up because he's not going to fail you. Okay? Let's pray. So, Father, as I prayed at the beginning, Lord, for all who are complacent or presumptuous in their faith, Lord, would you afflict them rightly? give them the conviction of the Holy Spirit and show them the path of repentance. And Lord, for those with a wounded, afflicted conscience who are, feel imprisoned in their sin, would you give the great comfort and encouragement of the Holy Spirit? That Lord, you do not abandon them, you do not forsake them. Lord, that you have pardoned them, that, that Lord, their status is secure in heaven and you will secure their faith on earth and bring them safely through. Thank you, God, that ultimately we're not the ones who have to lead our own way through it. Jesus, you lead us, and we trust that you will lead us safely home. May we never presume on your grace, but would it draw us ever closer to you. In your name, amen.